Hello, and welcome to Kick Out 299. I am your always effervescent Rachel. And I'm Alicia. When Alicia and I first started going over potential podcast topics, Factions in Pururasu was one that really stuck out to us. Every promotion seems to book them a little bit differently, and that became intensely interesting to us. The more we researched, the more we found to talk about, and eventually we decided to make a series. Each episode in this series will give an overview of factions in one specific Pororesu company, followed by an in-depth discussion with a guest where we get their unique insight on the company and a few of their factions. For our very first episode in this series, we'll be talking about DDT Pro Wrestling, DDT has an extremely unique relationship with factions over the years due to its patented mix of humor and experimentation in wrestling, and we couldn't think of a better promotion to start with. Our deep dive will be followed by a conversation with Sarah Kerchak, author of I Overcame My Autism and All I Got Was This Lousy Anxiety Disorder, and lover of all things pro wrestling and pop culture. Sarah has been a driving force in the DDT fandom for years, especially known for her love of Damnation and Tetsuya Endo. She will walk us through Endo's journey through factions during his time at DDT, so stick around for that. So then what are we waiting for? Let's get ready and go! In professional wrestling, a faction, or commonly known in Western wrestling as a stable, is a group of wrestlers within a promotion who have a common element, whether it's friendships, family, a common manager, a common storyline, an ethos. It just puts them all together as a unit. A faction can consist of anywhere between three wrestlers to a group consisting of basically half the roster. Like you'll look at NWO, basically everybody on earth was an NWO. So we're covering DDT. And what I find absolutely fascinating about DDT is that faction warfare as a brand concept didn't truly begin until 2005. The company was started in 1997, but Sanchiro Takagi didn't come to take over as president until 2005, when it goes from Dramatic Dream Team to DDT, as we know it today. This coincides with the timing of the first real faction-based feuds in DDT, uh, starting mostly with the Italian Four Horsemen versus Disaster Box. Faction warfare had already been a concept in Japan and a fairly popular one in several other promotions, which we'll definitely cover the history of in other episodes because it's it's great. It's really fascinating. So to me, it's really interesting to see how the booking seems to match up not with a surge in popularity of a certain booking style or you know faction style, but in a direct leadership change of the company. So... As most people already know, DDT started its life as a WWE parody company before evolving into what it is today. So unsurprisingly, a lot of the first few factions in DDT started out as WWE parodies. But this also works alongside what I was saying there with the new leadership of Sanchiro Takagi, who himself was originally meant to be a parody of Steve Austin. For me, as um, 
someone who's really new to DDT and you know that Rachel, it's interesting to reflect on DDT's origins as a WWE parody company. Cause I just didn't really know that it, but Takagi's obvious Steve Austin parody just like never really phased me for some reason. Like I knew that's what he was doing. Um, but I never thought to question if that had some sort of like connection to something larger than just Takagi, I guess. You know, it's funny because I'm not really like an old WWE fan at all, WWF. So I actually never knew that it was a Steve Austin parody for the longest time. I think I read it somewhere and I was like, oh, I guess that explains the glass. That's it. That's all it was. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Um, so that's that's really funny that you should say that. But yeah, there aren't a whole lot of traces of that anymore. And we'll talk just a little bit of that, um, of them getting away from that. And um, they still have a lot of parodies, but you don't see a lot of the old traces of WWE, WWF anymore. But notably starting out, we have um, the Italian Four Horsemen, which was a stable started in 2005 as really loud Italian stereotypes. Um, this was also a direct send up to Dragon Gate's um, popular Italian connection, which disbanded in 2005 when Milano Collection AT left the company. You also have uh, Aloha World Order, which was another stable led by Antonio Honda, much like the Italian Four Horsemen, um, adding a twist to a popular WWF stable. Uh, this time, instead of Italian stereotypes, Types, you have some of the members operating off of native Hawaiian Polynesian stereotypes, which really hit some of the issues of DDT at this time. I'm going to probably mention that really shortly here that when you're hitting on these parodies on these jokes, you're getting a lot of humor that is a product of the time and doesn't really need to be perpetuated, period. Right. Um, you get a lot, um, you have this undertone of that Hawaiian savage stereotype with especially Shuji Ichikawa was playing this character called Ku um, that had sort of this abyss gimmick going on. But it's still, again, no matter which company started it, we don't really need to be perpetuating these stereotypes. So as we talk about how they got away from that and evolved into their own thing, you're going to see a very different side of DDT. Um, and I think that's pretty great. But for the most part, these stereotypes were actually taken as direct parodies of WWE superstars. Honda was basically doing a Ricky Steamboat impersonation like the <laughs> whole time. Um, it was really good, actually. It was really spot on. Um, and then you had um, Futoshi Miwa um, playing a character called King Ala Moana, who's a send up to the rock. So you had, it wasn't, it's not my favorite, but it's a little more harmless than it looks on the outside. But again, we really don't need to be perpetuating that. And we'll talk about that again with um, like Homo Ero Clover Z, where you have these gay stereotypes um, during this period leading up into 2012. And again, you know, it's led by Dan Shokudino, who is gay. He is out, but we don't really need to be perpetuating it. So it's really cool that they start to evolve and get away from that. Mm -hmm. Change is going to be a big thing here. <laughs> um, going on, though, our heel factions are not actually um, these knockoffs, these parodies, which I find kind of interesting. Instead, you have um, these cheesy cartoon villains that just do a lot of interference heel work. 
uh, disaster box, which is now known as your basic face faction in DDT, was actually originally DDT's main and really first heel faction, led at the time by Todo Owashi. This was a really short run, ending when Hiroshima took the belt from Owashi after leaving the faction unsatisfied with Owashi's leadership. One of the bigger heel units, and I want to talk about this just because I really enjoyed watching through <laughs> it, uh, but I, I think it is a very significant one as well, uh, was Metal Vampire from about 2007 to 2008, led by Dick Togo after he turned against the Aloha War World Order. They are the pinnacle of interference heels, and I can see a lot of NJPW's House of Torture in oh, them. Wow. You have, yeah, absolutely. You have Dick Togo, who is like walking and smirking. He's like this dangerous badass, but he's also kind of um, just a coward. And he's surrounded by his cronies who will come in and do all this stuff. Uh, there was this really good cage match. It's actually the pinnacle, like the big peak, the climax of the storyline where Sanchiro Takagi is taking matters into his own hands and he wants to end Dick Togo and Metal Vampire. And so there's this big cage match and they're like sliding in weapons through the cage, which is really fun. And Dick T Togo is so cool. Please seek out this match if you can. <laughs> um, it was 2008, really good match, but um, Dick Togo is, it's really cool seeing him playing this role that you kind of see him thrusting on evil now, if you're watching NJPW. So I saw that in there and I really enjoyed that, but I would, also call focusing back on DDT, I would call Metal Vampire the first taste of a serious stable in DDT, um, probably short of Disaster Box. They're your first sort of real heels where they're coming in. They're very dangerous. It's almost an invasion angle in some ways. And I found that pretty interesting. Um, upon Metal Vampire disbanding in 2008, after this cage match, you have Togo and Antonio Honda restarting the Italian Four Horsemen, this time with Togo bringing in some of his own trainees, um, using the stable to sort of build DDT's future, which you see a lot in DDT. You're gonna be building up a lot of your rookies. They get a lot of young talent. And that really started very early with uh, Dick Togo bringing in, um, in this case, the freelancer Daisuke Sasaki, who I want to note was called Sasaki and Gabbana <laughs> at this point, because we're going off of just full Italian, like models and designers. It, it's good. It's really good. It's very funny. And I just want to say too, um, Disaster Box origins as a heel faction are fascinating to me because again, my only context for them is as, as a newer fan, they're such a face faction. I think some of my first like matches with Disaster Box were um, obviously watching stuff with um, Hiroshima and Marafuji. So that's really my introduction to Disaster Box, but it's just really interesting to reflect on them being a heel faction and how that kind of changed over time. And that the first run of that faction was not even very long compared oh, to- really short. Yeah, it's, it's like interesting. Less than a year. Yeah, um, Owashi was the closest thing you got to like a um, dominant heel champion. And then Hiroshima was coming up as a uh, ace. 
basically. And that's what he has become. But a lot of times you see, and this is going into another booking strategy altogether outside of faction warfare, um, your ace often starts off very arrogant, heelish, cocky. Um, please also look up videos of Hiroshima from this time period because his hair is terrible. <laughs> it's dreadful. Um, he looks awful mullet. Ugh, oh, it's, it's the worst mullet. It's he wishes he had what Akatoshi Saito has. <laughs> it's it's very sad to see, but he grows into his own. And once he grows into his own, you get the Hiroshima we have now in Disaster Box with Marafuji and Owashi again. And we're going to talk a little bit about that because I really actually love that story of how Disaster Box came into be. Uh, but I do want to note during this time period, uh, it's really fluid. And that's sort of weird to say, but you have one heel unit, one face unit, one heel unit, one face unit. You start to branch out a little bit as we go into the 10 year anniversary and 2007 onwards. And I'm gonna talk about that right now because that's a really big point in DDT in which we start to adapt and change and change becomes a really, really central part of DDT's entire booking strategy. And you can really see that with a lot of the factions. So you still have your parody groups, but at this point, I'd say probably around 2008 or nine, we're moving away from straight up WWE parodies into parodies of just other angles of pop culture. You have a big example is Takagi's TKG48 which was formed in 2011, in which Sanchez Takagi wanted to put together this super popular group of all kinds of people in pro wrestling. Um, Tenryu was a member. <laughs> That's just everyone, new, old, it didn't matter. He wanted to make his own version of this super pop idol phenomenon, AKB48, which you see parodied throughout in DDT um, to this day. But he, he disbanded that very quickly within a year's time after he felt humiliated and brutalized after losing the extreme belt to El Generico. So it was just a flash in the pan comedy unit. And you have a lot of that from 2009 to 2012. You have La Familia, which I think only lasted a month. That was Masa Takanashi's group. And then the wholly inappropriate, again, Homo Ero Clover Z, which almost made it to a year. They're all comedic units. However, it didn't make it to a year, and I'll tell you why. And that's because this is a transitionary period and it's all about change. So Jamie of Dramatic DDT on WordPress, really great blog, um, really describes this period as um, experimenting with the elements of pro wrestling that have existed for so long that they were taken for granted. To me, this is something that DDT is really known for when it comes to its factions. They take what we know and they mix things up in only a way DDT can. And this comes down to one really crucial thing and that's just mass chaos caused by some harebrained scheme, usually by Takagi, sometimes by the GM at the time, Aman Surumi, who is now known as Hisaya Imabayashi. Um, one of my favorite examples is 2010's Shit Heart Foundation. This unit was born from a match stipulation called a unit reorganization battle royal. 
So you had a whole bunch of people in the ring. And when one wrestler scores a fall, they can choose somebody else in that match to team up with. And then they leave together and then the match starts over. So it was literally a matchmaking match, which was very interesting. And in this case, Michael Nakazawa and Tomi Mitsumatsunaga, they were already a really bad tag team that had no wins, <laughs> but they were the last two left standing. So they were forced to tag together again. But then Hikaru Sato slid in to save the day and he came out and he proposed that they form a stable called the Shit Heart Foundation, which I've been told is more accurately translated as like the Rotten Heart Foundation, but it's literally like actually trans like transcribed as like the Shito Harto Foundation. So shit heart it is. Um, but oh, go ahead. Yeah. And I just wanted to ask because I know you said they were getting away from the use of like WWE, WWF names, but is this supposed to be like a take on the Heart Foundation? Like, is that I don't what know. it's supposed to do? I don't know. I really don't because there isn't anything else about it that is remotely similar. I like looked up the Heart Foundation to go look. And I think it might just be the name. I think that's it. Okay. Um, yeah, they, they do like a little pose with like heart hands. It's very cute. Um, this, they never won really anything. And eventually everybody got kicked out except for like two members. And they formed a union with the Susan Guard in uh, Union Pro and they became the shit heart Susan superstars, I think, if I remember the name correctly. But yeah, the, it was a very um, flash, another flash in the pan, very strange sort of stable, but I don't really think it was like a full parody. So that's something to, to definitely look into. But um, jumping forward a bit, you have another really like fun match stipulation that um, came to sort of affect units. And that's uh, Soma Takao. And this is again, forward um, in another period of time altogether in 2017, where there was a six man match where each member represented a faction and the winner won Soma Takao. <laughs> and then Soma eventually won the match himself and decided to join Smile Squash, which we will talk about. And Smile Squash didn't even want him. Actually, um, Yasuyurano didn't want him. Hiroshima wants everybody. He's totally fine <laughs> with everyone. He's like, oh yeah, come on in. But um, yeah, these little matches are something that really just set DDT apart. And they keep things fresh in a way that a lot of companies don't often do. And that just becomes really important as we get closer and closer to modern DDT. And the current period we're in, which I would argue is another transitionary phase, very similar to the one that we're facing in this period of time that I'm talking about in like 2011, 2012, all the way about to 2014. However, there was, like I said, a big reason why a lot of these units leading up to 2012 were short, so short-lived. And that is because on August 26th, 2012, Amon Sarugi announced, plain and simple, that DDT cannot flourish if it isn't constantly changing, which is just a huge, huge line that sums up DDT. It cannot flourish if it isn't constantly changing. And he demanded that all these units disband and new units have to be formed by September 30th, 2012. 
see, this is a sort of thing that like would stress me out because <laughs> uh, this also feels very, and like, I'm not as familiar with Dragon Gate. I don't watch the promotion, but this feels very Dragon Gate to me. I feel like they are constantly like changing their factions and people are joining and leaving and disbanding and whatnot and ending things. Um, that doesn't necessarily happen as often in um, like New Japan, Noah, All Japan, you know, things are maybe not necessarily the junior division right now in Noah, but you know, in, in a historical <laughs> Noah. Um, but yeah, that would, that would stress me out. I don't, I don't know how I feel about that. So it's actually interesting when I was talking to a friend about units and about Dragon Gate, and I mentioned this about Dragon Gate and he responded with, oh no, actually Dragon Gate units are around for a while. Like they last a pretty long time. Um, but the, you're right that the members go in and out. And once we get to Dragon Gate, that's going to be a really interesting one to um, explore and dig into and uh, see how that matches up with DDT. And um, a little cage match fun fact when I was digging around is that um, despite being 25 years younger than New Japan, DDT has had, I want to say like 10 more stable like factions <laughs> in its database and half a lot of those aren't even listed in cage match like there are some that just pop up and are there for a day and are gone forever um which we'll talk about a little bit more we have some really fun ones that um just pop up just as as quick jokes um so yeah it, it is it's it's stressful you don't really know when you're supposed to get attached um during this time period once we get a little bit later into it around 20 I'd say like 16 then we start to get to a point where they kind of say you can get attached to this stable trust us and um it's a little more marketable I'd say so mm-hmm. And this really gets started more or less in 2012. You see the birth of units like Monster Army, Urashima Kudo, and one of my personal newfound favorites, uh, Team Dream Futures. I got obsessed with them almost instantly. Um, a year after saw the formation of Golden Rendezvous, which evolved in 2014 to Golden Storm Riders, which is a really significant unit. And these teams are all wildly different, but they began almost in the exact same way, just with the founding members standing together in the ring saying, hey, we're going to be a new unit. And usually the team name came after. It would just be like, oh, by the way, I think our unit name is going to be, well, this is Yurno, or this is Yasu Yarno, this is Hiroshima, this is Kudo. So we're going to be Urashima Kudo. And uh, that's, you know, very, very simple. Um, it's has this almost makeshift DIY feeling to it that I really like. I really feel like this is a feeling that DDT gives. Due to the disbanding, there's no real room for them to do these betrayals and storylines that you see in New Japan or like Dragon Gate where we mentioned, not at this time. Instead, you just have a bunch of people coming together because they share a philosophy in wrestling. Like Monster right. Army are just a bunch of goofballs. They want to do a bunch of goofy stuff. Or Shimakudo 
are all veterans who want to protect the legacy of DDT. Team Dream Futures are a bunch of salty young boys who are just hungry and mean. Um, and then, yeah, so you have a lot of different aspects. I really like that because um, they all embody their own philosophy, but they also create their own aspect of DDT which is something that never lets up in the coming years. Almost every unit sort of represents something different that DDT has to offer. It almost creates this something for everyone approach. This period does feel very foundational and really kind of sets the tone for what we're seeing today. Oh, absolutely. You have um, Hiroshima Kudo. Like I said, they have this history of DDT. Team Drift represents a future for DDT. They have more serious matches, including challenging and eventually winning the AJPW All Asia Junior Tag Belts. And then you have Honda's Monster Army, which keeps that car goofy cartoon villainy of DDT alive, um, like stealing opponents' clothes and threatening to sell the belts on eBay so they can buy a tank for their entrances. <laughs> Just a lot of goofy stuff. Um, and then to that end, you have the Golden Storm Riders, which is almost a combination of everything. Um, and they manage to sort of fill holes in the comedy where they kind of take over where Monster Army left off, but they still have this major draw of Ibushi. And then you have Kenny Omega, you know, he's a great wrestler. So you have these units that all sort of represent something that people can take out of. They can get attached to that. And it's like you said, where you see where the foundations are being laid for what we know out of DDT today. Um, one thing that I see a lot when people talk about DDT and I see it in this time period is this conversation about a split identity, almost an identity crisis, which you really see in a lot of comments, a lot of cage match comments. Um, when people bring up the company, but I really find it interesting how they take these units to sort of embody all the different pieces of identity that DDT has. And as we go on through the company's history, they begin to put that identity together. Another interesting result of these sort of pieced together, almost found family sort of units that just sort of come together is the way that they fall apart. They don't really fall apart with a bang. There aren't a lot of betrayals. The closest you can really get is Kudo from Urashima Kudo, who wants to challenge Hiroshima for the KOD Openweight Championship on February 23rd, 2014. And he just leaves the group and goes on and then leaves um, Yasuyarno and Hiroshima and they just continue as Urashima, no kudo, that's it. Uh, Monster Army just sort of agrees to dissolve that they wanna go their separate ways. Um, a month after Urashima Kudo breaks up at the Judgment Anniversary show and they get a really nice, cute, bittersweet send-off match. They play back all their greatest hits. It's, it's kind of cute. Um, it's a fun little match. And then um, Team Drift, they last long enough to get past this transition period but even still, they just sort of quietly break up after exactly 100 matches in 2016, each member sort of deciding to go chase their own dreams instead of being the dream futures together. 
And then getting into this, whereas I, like I said, um, Golden Storm Riders almost represents all of these units sort of put together, Golden Storm Riders sort of falls apart in those bits and pieces, but in a really sad way, they just fall. Kenny Omega leaves DDT in 2014 to go chase his own dreams. Um, Suguru Miyatake suffers a long-term injury and has to go on indefinite hiatus. And then by 2016, Kota Ibushi is barely there. He's barely in DDT at that point. He's just off doing his own thing. And that leaves only Daisuke Sasaki in the stable, which just causes Golden Storm Riders to end. This is important because it really drives home what this time period is about. It's transition. These are quiet dissolutions of family units. It's really sad, but it feels like new chapters are opening up for a lot of people. And it leads us into what I would call the modern era. From this point forward, units become a direct result of the units from that transition period. It becomes more fluid in these storylines. You're now getting smooth booking that DDT didn't really rely on before. And from this point forward, new units became a direct result of the old units from the transition period which builds this feeling of fluid booking that DDT didn't really rely on heavily before. You still get some units pulled from the aether out of a common cause, uh, most notably Happy Motels, born from Trans Am Hiroshi and Antonio Honda, deciding to make the most of their time left in DDT by guiding two youngsters into the future in Endo Tetsuya and Kunosuke Takeshita. And I see a little bit of like the revived Aloha World Order in this where Dick Togo and right. Antonio Honda. Yeah, so you'll see mm -hmm. a lot of them playing back some things that worked for them in the past. Um, but for the most part, many of the units in this time around 2015, 2016 are born from backstory rather than just matching ethos. You have Kudo who left Urashima Kudo, just mentioned that, to challenge for the title. And he begins tagging with Yukio Sakaguchi and Masa Takanashi. They start calling themselves Shutendoji after a Japanese yokai known for drinking because they all really, really <laughs> like alcohol. And um, they all drink in the ring together. Uh, fun fact, actually, I found out that Gota Ihashi apparently named the group while drunk at a bar. Um, so that sounds about right. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it's pretty, pretty on par for everybody. And in Kudo's wake, he left just Hiroshima and Yasu Yurino. So they added Akito to their little tag team, which formed a whole new unit known as Smile Squash. However, perhaps the most visible from this transition period comes from that story of Daisuke Sasaki, who, like I said, had been abandoned little by little until Golden Storm Riders was left with no one at all. We talk about this character trait in our interview with Sarah, 
But this is where you start to see Sasaki's fear of abandonment take form, which leads us into 2016 with none other than the formation of the outright heel unit, Damnation. So let's talk about Damnation. <laughs> we have to talk about Damnation. Damnation starts out with just Sasaki and Shuji Ishikawa before Sasaki brings in his mysterious alien pet, Mad Polly. And I do want to mention that Shuji Ishikawa is also a pet. He wears a collar <laughs> and a leash because Sasaki doesn't want friends anymore. He doesn't trust them. He has abandonment issues, so he has to have pets, um, which was a very interesting angle. It's a very physical uh, embodiment of a character trait. I found that really, really interesting, but they are outright heels. They're terrible, just dreadful hooligans. And Damnation gave DDT more of a heel edge that they had been missing really since Metal Vampire, which is really fun to think about because Sasaki is the trainee of Dick Togo. Right, that makes sense. It's so interesting to think about how these things just connect, just recycle things. Yeah, I mean, and we're going to talk about that a lot with, uh, with Noah when we get there, a lot of how things connect together. Um, But more than that, Damnation gave people a place to go in this kayfabe where things just aren't enough for them anymore. And notably, you get Endotetsia, which again, Sarah discusses with us in fantastic detail. So can't, I I will pale in comparison compared to that. But um, Endotetsia felt like he was being overshadowed by Konosuke Takeshita and joins the unit. And then you have Soma Takao who turns on Hiroshima in 2018, which is a really heartbreaking turn to watch. And that effectively ended Smile Squash as at that point, Smile Squash had also systematically lost its members leaving just Hiroshima. So you'll see that again, playing back where people just sort of leave one by one, leaving one member. And um, it's a very heartbreaking take on how units ended during that transitionary phase. Uh, But more than that, it created this constant force of conflict. Damnation makes conflict inside and outside of the ring and it creates interest and storyline as well as this misfit found family of lovable rogues. So things are really starting to fit together now. All of these pieces set up from the early days of DDT and the transitionary period to now. You have your comedy, your simple heel face trade-offs, and now they have turned into full stories with a distinctly DDT flair. And really, this is a point where the faction warfare is very similar to what we see in pro promotions today, like New Japan, NOAA, Mm -hmm. things like that. And that's where the identity crisis argument goes to die. I'm sorry, like it, it does. They take this time to transition themselves into a stage where they can maintain their identity while still having these compelling matches and rivalries and stories built around traditional factions they never leave what is DDT 
because they have taken that time to transition into it. They always keep true to themselves. Like, I don't think anything shows it better than the beer garden shows, which we don't have those as much anymore because of the pandemic, but the beer garden shows are essentially produce shows. They're stretched over a series of days in Shinkaba first ring. And before the COVID era, a unit would receive one day of the beer garden to produce any match they wanted. And the audience would drink along with them and eat. And it was, it was just very, very um, lively. And even your more serious units like Team Drift would have these insane parody matches. Um, I recommended a few to you where they just parody 90s All Japan. They have oh, yeah. a match where they do nothing but jumping knees um, while Jumbo <laughs> Saruta's theme plays. <laughs> it's really good. Um, or they fight DJ Nira or play uh, homage to old DDT running gags, which the Shuten Doji uh, group love to do, especially Yukio Sakaguchi. <laughs> he loves to just let loose and, and have his moment. And it keeps things fun and fresh, even in the midst of some really serious rivalries. But it also gives a distinct identity to the unit and each member of the unit. And there's a lot more we can say about produce shows in general, because that's what a produce show is. But I do think that there is something to be said for how DDT makes sure that every unit, even tag teams like Mao and Mike Bailey had to have their own beer garden day. Um, but every single unit gets a chance to show themselves off. And this creates a push for marketability, which is something that DDT became really well known for and really good at during this time period. You know, before this, we have photo books of Ibushi, Hiroshima, and Takeshita, a really good photo book, by the way, or you have um, roster books of everybody nude or the golden lovers. But now we're getting specific faction books like the Shuten Doji photo book. You get faction shows, you get faction portraits. DDT has fully capitalized on this team mentality of Pudoresu fans, but they're still doing it in that way that only DDT can. They really are masters of marketability. I mean, just in the pandemic alone, how many virtual signings did they do and how many like opportunities did you have to have the entire faction sign something for you? I mean, it's, it's sort of genius how they've been able to do it. And really they're the only promotion doing it. Oh, absolutely. It's gotten to a point where the fandom is known for being habitually broke because of <laughs> how much they churn out as far as uh, like portraits, really any of their merch. It's really genius, but it's so funny how the timeline, whenever DDT drops merch, you just see the timeline devolve into people going, my wallet. Without <laughs> yeah, fail. So uh, DDT has, no one does it like them. No one does it like them. Um, you also have unit elections during this time, um, starting around 2014. In 2010, DDT started something called the Dramatic Sosenkyo, which is a general fan voted election. And that is a direct parody of AKB48. Like I said, they call back to AKB all the time because it is such a huge deal in Japan. They even had like the same sort of election posters that they did for the AKB, the idols. Um, 
And again, this just calls back to DDT's parody of pop culture that evolved as it started to leave behind that identity as a WWE parody. So it's all about that change, that evolved, that adaptation. Adding in the unit elections in 2014 is really significant. It shows just how much DDT has come to value faction warfare as a way to engage the fans, but you're still throwing in that classic DDT parodying into the mix. And again, it's just something that only DDT can do. There's still some really funny things that they ended up doing. There's the stipulation where the lowest ranking team would have to disband. However, Sanchir Takagi every single year would make a brand new unit, usually called pigging. I think in 2018, they called it booing, but um, they would inevitably be disbanded every single year and it sort of became a running gag. This is not an identity crisis. It's an adaptation. It's taking all the things we see every day in wrestling and playing with them. It's taking everything you see in DDT from 2005 when this faction warfare first started and it's evolving it and it's adapting and it's changing and it's creating something new from that. And that is what DDT is all about. So this focus on marketability and faction warfare pays off in a really big way when DDT launches its first streaming service, then known as DDT Universe, on January 23rd, 2017. However, not much changes about the product at this point, and that's really important. Once Cyber Agent buys 100% of DDT's uh, shares on September 1st, 2017, there's a lot of speculation that the product will change to suit a specific kind of match or booking style and nothing really changes. And you saw those same fears, I'm sure, when uh, Cyberfight came into fruition and Noah and DDT sort of merged into yeah. the same company. Mm -hmm. A lot of people were afraid something would change and um, nothing really had because DDT is very true to itself. Noah is very true to itself. And um, I firmly believe that that's really because DDT had already set itself up with this transitionary period, creating this storytelling method that works on a large market scale, very similar to what we see while still keeping its comedic roots. It can't really change itself from that at that point, not without some major, major changes. Um, there are still some really important faction developments that happened fairly early into what I call the streaming era, um, where things become a lot more noticeable, a lot more large scale. Mm -hmm. uh, first and foremost is the formation of All Out, stemming from Akito, who had recently left Smile Squash, joining up with the then KOD champion, Kunosuke Takeshita, who's this young ace, and I want to mention this unit because on the surface, they sort of were these company darlings, but as an actual unit and how they acted, they're very similar to Team Drift. They're very 
hungry, young wrestlers who value a good match more than anything else. And again, it sort of recycles what they already know is working in DDT. So I really enjoyed that out of All Out is that they have this bond of friendship that was very similar to Team Dream Futures. The second major thing I wanted to mention is the creation of a weekly television program on Cyber Agents Abema TV, DDT Live Maji Manji, which started airing in April 2018. This gave a more regular and widely watched product for people to get into DDT. And it also allowed for a lot of the younger wrestlers who've been working in DDT's developmental brand, DNA, to start getting acquainted with the main product. This eventually turned into a faction draft on an episode of Maji Manji, where DNA had suspended activities and all of its members named one by one which faction or even promotion, some of them went over to Basara or Gambare um, that they wanted to join and the people in the faction would negotiate from there. And this was just raw chaos and I would highly, highly recommend it. And it honestly shows how the company simply never loses its heart. It comes up with these chaotic drafts to change the units and all these harebrained schemes to keep things lively and interesting. And this is also what led to the formation of what we now know as the current incarnation of Disaster Box. Hiroshima had lost everything when Soma left him for damnation. Everyone else in Smile Squash had gone their own way. And so he approaches Awashi during the DNA draft and Hiroshima asked him to revive Disaster Box with him. And it bears very little resemblance to the heel unit of days of old to the point where Ueno and Yoshimura who were like the earliest members of this group just knew nothing about DNA or like DDT history. They knew nothing about Disaster Box. It was really funny. Yeah, when they asked Ueno, he was like, yeah, sure, what's that? (laughs) Um, So, and then Ueno eventually uh, bugged Yoshimura into joining. It's a very cute story. It's very found family, but it's really nice to see Hiroshima and Awashi sort of making amends in that way. Yeah, so it's it's just interesting because like throughout um you leading this discussion on the history of factions it just seems like Hiroshima ends up in these situations where people tend to leave him one by one and it leads you to think like is that what we're heading towards one day with even this new incarnation of disaster boxes like it's hard to to think about that but I don't know the, the pattern tends to be there for him it does he tends to end up alone and a little bit miserable sometimes. Um, Hiroshima can be hard to watch at times because you want the best for him and you want the most for him and things don't always go his way. And I do wonder sometimes if we're going to get, you know, Yoshimura leaving Disaster Box once he feels ready to sort of graduate from that. I don't know if Awashi is ever going to leave. I really value their friendship and I really hope they don't leave. And of course, I think Marafuji is just going to follow Hiroshima wherever he goes. I mean, he's <laughs> so part-timer anyway. He shows up, I think, maybe once or twice a year. Um, it's always a delight when he does. 
but um, he's very much absentee uncle Marafuji um, as far as his role in DDT goes. Um, Hirata is just going to be Kazuki Hirata no matter what. So it's interesting to see where things are going to go, um, which leads us perfectly into where we are now in DDT. And that's what I want to think of, and I'm pretty sure it is, a second transition phase. Things have started to even out when we're about 2018 to early 2020, DDT has fallen into a pretty comfortable place. We have this steady stream of storylines and feuds, both from within the promotion and even from without, like outside of the promotion. We have units coming in. I highly recommend watching All Out versus Sendai Girls. That is a phenomenal feud. Um, but, you know, you have this very comfortable sort of pace that we're going at. And we have people starting to decide casually that they work well together and they just want to form a unit much like they did back in 2012. Eruption being a huge example after Shutendoji disbanded because Kudo went on indefinite hiatus due to injuries and Takanashi started tagging with some newcomer called Chris Brooks, Sakaguchi started to tag on his own with Higuchi Kazusada, who had just come back from his own injury. And they were joined by Saki Akai. And they sort of came together specifically because, and Sakaguchi states this, that they have a similar philosophy on pro wrestling. And that just really struck me as being very similar to Urashima Kudo, to you know, Teen Dream Futures, just standing in the ring saying, these are my friends, we're gonna be a unit. And they had a really nice, impressive unit debut. They come together very naturally but it's more similar to early formations than anything that really happened as a result of a storyline. And I will say about Eruption 2, they feel really unique to DDT's factions landscape, particularly when it comes to their leadership styles. Because if you're to say, you know, who's the leader of um, Eruption, you really can't pick one person as the leader of Eruption. And that's kind of the best part of them. It really depends on the storyline. Like when they were fighting Damnation for the six-man titles, uh, that was 100% Saki, was 100% the story there that she wanted to prove herself to Yuji Hino. But, you know, sometimes you would look at it and say, oh no, Higuchi's definitely the leader. Oh no, Sakiguchi's definitely calling the shots. And yeah, you have a really good point there. So um, we'll see now that they've added... Um, Okatani, if Okatani ever gets his moment where he's like, no, I'm the leader actually of eruption now. And like, okay, let's listen to this toddler. Um, it could happen. I, it would be really cool. I have not watched um, his new look in Tag League yet. I'm about to do that as soon as we're done. I'm very excited <laughs> to see a new eruption because they, they fit together really well, which is really cool. And speaking of Okatani, um, June Rats was also formed with this similar sort of less of a bang and in this case more of just like a Twitter post. <laughs> um, actually, it was formed with Sanchiro Takagi sliding into June Akiyama's DMs, um, which was an exact quote, by the way, <laughs> slid into his DMs. Um, Akiyama joined the promotion 
as a head dojo coach in May of 2020 because he didn't have a whole lot going on um, after you know departing AJPW. And they ended up forming a unit around him to sort of kayfabe in his training with Okatani, with Mizuki Watase. And he starts working with uh, Makoto Oishi and his storyline sort of becomes him getting acquainted with this oddities of DDT. But for the most part, the actual formation of the unit was very much just sort of piecing people around Junakiyama. Similarly, you just have, you have a lot of this. You have Sauna Club, which already existed. That was already a thing in DDT. These four friends who just liked each other. They went to saunas together. They already had their own like Twitter page called DDT Sauna Club. And that's Takeshja, Shunma Katsumata, Yuki Ueno, and Mao. It wasn't until the members of All Out decided that they wanted to go their separate ways and had their final produce show on March 12th, 2021, that they decided to become that full faction, which is now Sauna Kamina. Really during this like current time period, the only unit that I would say formed under an actual quote unquote storyline would be pheromones of all units. Uh, with Eno left alone after All Out, he was taken in by Dan Shokudino and they formed this lewd comedy unit, which really goes back to what I was saying where each unit sort of represents something different out of DDT. You have your lewd comedy unit. You have your scrappy, young, hungry guys. You have eruption with your badass, sexy fighters. Um, that's sort of very similar to what I see in the 2012, 2014 era. And it echoes a lot of that transition period in DDT's history rather than having these fully evolved storylines of betrayals and loneliness and unlikely friendship. And this isn't really a bad thing. It feels very natural. It just, it exists to keep things new and fresh. And of course, nothing keeps anything as new and fresh as a good old harebrained scheme that disbands a unit. <laughs> So we're going to talk a lot about the damnation breakup with Sarah in just a moment, but I do want to give a quick background on the situation. So Sanchiro Takagi, completely out of nowhere, like I was totally blindsided by this, announced this dramatic survivor tournament, which was a unit tournament where the losing unit would be disbanded. Damnation shockingly lost, leaving a lot of fans absolutely flabbergasted. And their last match, this is almost unceremonious, was on September 26, 2021. And this leads to a lot of members being without units, sort of shaking things up and leading to that story progression that you see in early 2014, 2015, where people are homeless and trying to you know, find something that suits them. Similarly, Junrets was forced to disband in 2021 as well in a match that 
I didn't even know was a disband stipulation match <laughs> until yeah, the confusing. day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Hakusan on Twitter tweeted that and a whole lot of people were like, it's a what now? <laughs> but Sanchir Takagi just decided it. Um, and this led to Hideki Okatani eventually asking to join Eruption and then Junakiyama and Okada Yusuke without units. Mizuki Watase moved on to Gambare Pro, where I hear he's doing very well. I'm very happy to hear that. But um, this leads to, with Junakiyama and Yusuke Okada, this leads directly into the formation of Burning, with the newly displaced Endo Tetsuya at the head after getting the blessing of Kenta Kobashi. In just a moment, we're going to talk about both of those events and why they are so significant. And Sarah walks us through them, analyzes them both really beautifully. But I do want to, just before we do that, mention this really incredibly important quote from Sanchir Takagi, translated by Mr. Hakusan on Twitter after Damnation lost that dramatic survivor tournament on September 4th, 2021. And he says, I had it in my head to have this tournament. We can't let things go stale. We are the dramatic dream team. This might be a happy end for some, a bad ending for others, but the key is to make things happen. Some fans said they thought DDT was not a promotion that would do something like this, but they may not know what DDT used to be like in the past. We even disbanded all of the units once. It was not an easy decision for me to make, but I couldn't stand DDT being looked at as being in one single mold. I want it to be impossible to know what to expect of DDT. And that sums it up. That goes back to what Aman Surumi said in 2012. DDT is an endless toy box and a mad scientist lab all at once. It changes, it adapts, and then it changes again. And I, for one, am looking forward to seeing how the company adapts this time. So we are here with Sarah Kerchak. And Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about you? Okay, so I am a retired professional pillow fighter um, and <laughs> freelance writer. Um, I was born in Toronto, raised about 20 minutes outside of Niagara Falls, and then made my way back to Toronto. Um, I've been writing about pop culture in general, with some of my focuses being sort of autism representation in pop culture, mixed martial arts and culture, um, movies, music, um, a little bit of books and um, wrestling most recently. Um, I also have a book out now called I Overcame My Autism and All I Got Was This Lousy Anxiety Disorder, which is a collection of personal <laughs> essays that uses misadventures from my own life to highlight some bigger issues I hope that affect a lot of autistic people. Um, and I'm working on another project now that I was really hoping I'd be able to tell you about by now, but I cannot. So something <laughs> secret is coming. Still exciting to know that it's in the works though. So thank you at least for sharing that. <laughs> I am pretty excited. I'm actually quite anxious to finally get to say something now. That's awesome. And what are like 
where can people find you on Twitter or some other social media profiles? So on Twitter and Instagram at fodder figure, F-O-D-D-E-R figure. Um, and from there, I share most of the stuff that I write. Um, I am freelance, so I'm kind of all over the place and have been busy working on like bigger projects lately. So I don't have a lot of fun stuff to show, but I have done some stuff about movies for Time Magazine. Um, and I have done some wrestling writing for Fan Fight. Yeah, so you have written about DDT before specifically as well. And Alicia and I are both huge fans of your Sasaki article in particular. (laughs) (laughs) Always an iconic article. But uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and uh, more on where our listeners can find and read your work? I know you mentioned it on Twitter, but go ahead, sell yourself. Okay, so uh, I mean, (laughs) sword story does feel like a part of my soul. There's like... (laughs) I tend to think of Tetsuya Naito and Daisuke Sasaki as the angel and the devil on my shoulders. Um, And there's just perhaps a tragic amount of my life that I identify with like the character of Daisuke Sasaki. Um, And I just felt that this sort of tragic, chaotic arc he had where he had this sword, which, I mean, he seemed vaguely interested in the actual purpose it represented, which was a right to challenge object that was slightly more dangerous than their usual ones but also just you know the idea of bringing this you know agent of chaos and ddt i know he's also their prom- primary heel but he is just the source of so much of what happens in ddt so much of the bullshit so much of the drama um and they gave him the sharp thing to just throw around and almost kill himself <laughs> and everyone in his vicinity um and it, so i just was you know, as he got it, I was already like, this can't end well. So I just started joking about how it was going to write like an obituary for this period in time when Sasaki had a sword and uh, pitched LB, who was the the editor of FanFight at the time. I was basically like, hey, so when Sasaki loses this sword, can I write about it? And then it was like a day later. I'm like, oh, can I write about it now? <laughs> and it actually happened that way. Um, so yeah, that that was at Fan Fight, which is I think where most of my current pro wrestling writing is. Um, and yeah, that would be the main place you can look for it now. Although I'm going to try to branch out, I think, when Secret Project is sort of more in control. So please keep an eye out and see what other weird bullshit I can write about. <laughs> It's absolutely, we will look forward to it. And it is always welcome on our blog as well. Just going to put that All right. on. <laughs> <laughs> We're always welcome. And we want to read more of your work uh, when we can. And maybe they'll even bring back the sword someday. That would be nice. That would be wonderful. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm very sad we haven't gotten gotten to it yet, but maybe, maybe it's- I miss more. the sword itself. And I also miss the sort of element of weirdness that the whole right to challenge- yeah, you know, I miss the gauntlets. Whatever objects were there, the gauntlets, the, the sword. Yeah, I need that chaos back. Yeah, hopefully they bring that back. Maybe uh, at judgment, like for the- Oh, that, that would be a perfect time for it, yeah. yeah. And this is just a personal anecdote from me. I'm definitely, of the three of you, the most like, the most new to DDT, the newer DDT fan, the most inexperienced. I started following you, Sarah, on Twitter, like right after I started getting into DDT. So the person I actually associate the most with you is Tetsuya Endo, because you were tweeting like a lot about him. And I learned about him um, primarily through you for a while and also through just starting to watch some of the shows. And 
Um, having you on today was, you know, we, important to us for a lot of reasons, but we really wanted to talk to you about Tetsuya Endo and his journey through factions. Since we're just coming off our big deep dive into DDT and their history of factions, and we are really interested in talking about Endo and his journey through factions. But just to start off, what made Endo your like one of your favorite DDT wrestlers, and why are you so connected to him? Well, I mean, I had. I worked in pop culture for a long time and music to begin with. And I knew a lot of journalists who would find an artist and it just like sort of became their professional and personal purpose to just try to explain to other people why this was the one. And I was always sort of jealous of that level of intensity and focus where, like, where <laughs> I never really found my musician that I wanted everyone to see through my eyes, just to understand how uniquely great they were from a certain perspective. And then I went and found it in a professional wrestler from DDT. I just, I think there's something really special about him that I think he's good as a wrestler in the normal ways that we talk about wrestling. But I also think there's something really unique about his performance that is not exactly like anything we've seen before. It's not like he's this singular wrestler above all others who have other, ever existed, but there is something special about him that is different. Um, when I first started watching DDT, um, like I was sort of instantly attracted to the way he moved in the ring. There's this sort of cat-like grace to it that no one else quite moves like that. So I was intrigued. And I also thought that he sort of held himself in this very almost regal above it all way. And I was attracted to that too. Um, as I started to pay more attention to his arc in DDT and his character, I came to interpret that as more of a front. I think there is like a ton of like desperate need to prove himself and try hardism to Endo that he tries to turn into like not caring and being this, you know, Sasaki-esque figure at times. Um, and like to see someone as purely athletic and purely talented as he is, like wrestling and portraying a character who is having to prove so much is such an interesting like dynamic to me. There's this push and pull of how he has sort of the most perfect form ever. If you look at his shooting star press, if you mm -hmm. just actually look at a photo of it, you can draw like a perfect arc from the base of his skull to his kneecap. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, why it has such a dramatic art. Now, if you go and look at anyone else's, say, I don't know, someone who does a shooting star press in New Japan Pro Wrestling at the moment, you will see that it's mostly a straight line from base of skull to knee. And that's why his is so choppy in comparison. Like, there's this beautiful artistry to everything Endo does. Um, and then he places it in a context of constant struggle and not being enough which is just so incredible for me to watch. Um, and so exciting because he could coast on being this like really cool flippy guy who does all of this stuff that makes people happy and you know doesn't get all of the big cage match ratings, but gets a number of them. <laughs> and he's chosen to like make portraying the art of suffering and dying seemingly as much of a goal as doing these perfect moves. So he's I guess sort of Icarus and Daedalus at the same time. And <laughs> I absolutely love watching it. Um, and yeah, I have threatened to write, I think 
I said it was going to be a 20,000 word manifesto on why he's the best. And I have broken it up. So it's from a form of pure athleticism to his form, to the way it portrays in the context of the matches, to the way it's in the context of the story. So it's like a 5,000 word four part manifesto. Oh yeah, it's like yeah, you have all the headings and that's before I even get into the fact that I just find his, you know, deep intense interest in breeding beetles really charming too. Oh, that's just part two. Uh, yeah, and <laughs> then- That's 20,000 words on just the beetles alone. Yeah, and then also like his weightlifting, I know that lots oh, of man. wrestlers are, you know, are trainers or they're very intense in their gym things, but um, I worked as a personal trainer for about 10 years. So I'm sort of a lapsed nerd who's getting back into it. Um, and so I also want to shout out how impressive he is just as a pure athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, so in fitness, we have what we call like the primary components of fitness, which are cardiovascular endurance, muscular strength, muscular endurance, flexibility, and body composition. Now, in my experience with mere mortals, you're not good at all of them. <laughs> like there's always some give and take. Someone who has perfect body composition probably isn't going to have the purest mus- muscular strength or, you know, someone who has the most flexibility probably won't have the same like size and weight to them. Um, and this bastard is like perfect at everything. He's incredibly <laughs> flexible. He has, and like you, the way that you train for pure strength and the way that you train for body composition are entirely different. Like you usually have to eat differently. You do different exercises at different, like different reps, different movements. And he has, he looks like he does, which we all know what that looks like, but he also has what is considered an almost elite level deadlift. Um, his one rep max, if you look at any table is just below elite for his weight at the moment. Um, people usually train just for that without everything else that he's doing. So he's just this incredible specimen before you even get to the artistry. And that definitely ties into what you were saying about his character too, where he could just be this prince, this godlike form, and yet Mm -hmm. he elects to have that level of, um, perfectionism to him that almost tears him apart which is very Mm -hmm. fascinating it's really cool Sarah after that you're the perfect person to ask but can you walk us through some of his backstory his start with DDT and and kind of take us from there okay so Endo um, was first exposed to pro wrestling playing video games with his friends I'm assuming it was fire pro wrestling um, and seemed vaguely interested in it it I can't quite tell from the context of the interviews. This is mostly in Rolling Stone, Japan, where he talked about it. But it seems he may have thought that pro wrestling looked cool in a video game and then decided to get into men's rhythmic gymnastics in high school. Um, And this is clearly where if you look at any sort of men's team rhythmic gymnastics in Japan, um, clearly where some of the drama started to impress upon him. Um, it's a unique background because it's about the flips, but it's also a very expressive art. Um, and then he happened to see a match between Apollo 55 and the Golden Lovers um, and was intrigued by Ibushi. And, and that was the point at which he decided he wanted to be a wrestler and reached out to DDT and tried out for them. 
um, ended up being accepted. Um, he trained in the DDT dojo under Keita Yano, um, and he debuted on April 1st, 2012. Um, he had like a perfectly normal rookie introduction that you would expect to see in any Puro. Um, you know, the game started in a tag team, took forever to get a win, um, which, you know, would be a very normal progression except he started to come into DDT at the time that super prodigy rookie of all time, Konosuke Takeshita showed up. Um, and the two of them, you know, were sort of, you know, Takeshita was ahead. They were working through their rookie journeys and they started working as a tag team in 2013. Um, they'd had two runs with the tag team belts together. Um, of course, the most famous one was when they beat the Golden Lovers for the tag team belts, which was the big torch passing moment for them. And so they worked together in Happy Motel with, you know, guidance from their elders um, in the form of Tanzan Hiroshi and Antonio Honda. Um, but in sort of classic pro storytelling fashion, Takeshita was pulling away. He was, you know, winning the KOD with KOD belts. Um, he was becoming like a fully fledged star and Endo was struggling to keep up. So in 2016, um, he challenged Takeshita for the belt. He lost. And then I'm sure we'll be getting more into this when we talk about the factions. <laughs> um, I would say, I know, I know I'm biased, but I think he made a justified move because I believe Takeshita's greatness has always come at the price of his humanity. And he was kind of a dick to Endo. So <laughs> I would have turned on him too. Um, and from that point on, Endo started to embody sort of the darkness or the counterpoint to Takeshita's overwhelming light, um, which I think was just excellent fodder for him because in, I think any other generation, he could have been the ace himself, but here he was against this like singular, uniquely perfect talent that he got to work against. And so he became more of the dark ace who was, you know, always sort of fighting from the back foot and always fighting for, you know, respect and attention. Um, and so he did, you know, start to do well in Damnation. I believe it was, I would say his um, first big step would have been his 2017 King of DDT win over Hiroshima to win the tournament um, was not able again tragically could not parlay that into a KOD victory um, but did sort of continue to grow and flourish within the sort of dysfunctional family of damnation um, and then 2019 came around and based on a bunch of fuckery and one of the aforementioned gauntlets, uh, he got to challenge the recently, like seconds ago, <laughs> crowned Daisuke Suzaki and um, the April 2019 coming to America match in Queens. I was in the front row um, crying. Yeah, <laughs> you saw that live, didn't you? <laughs> I did, yeah, absolutely. In the front row, it was four days after I had filed the first draft of my book. Oh my I was just wow. like absolutely raw and dead inside and hadn't felt <laughs> anything for four days. And then I was sitting there just like having this complete emotional meltdown that, I mean, my mother was a little bit of the fan at the time. I took my mother to this show. 
Um, but she was not aware of the extent of what was happening, why I was ranting about gauntlets, why I was like, why did Endo go backstage? Where's his gauntlet? Anyway, um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was great. And he also acknowledged Mike Tit's shirt in the front row. He just sort of rolled by suffering and said, nice shirt. And, you know, I used to interview A-list celebrities and I've never been that starstruck. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so his first crowning KOD victory was in America, um, not in front of the audience he had grown up with. And then when it came around again and he had another chance to challenge for the title, in 2020, um, it was during lockdown and Corona, Peter Pan had no crowds. So he won in an empty room. He has been like the most dominant force because Takeshita is only sort of coming back into the main picture in DET for about the past three years. And he's never won the title in front of a hometown crowd. Um, so even though he has accomplished so much in I think we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of his career this year yeah mm -hmm. um there is still so much left for him to accomplish which I mean there, there's so many different places he could go from here absolutely there is a lot we that still needs to be done you took the words right out of my mouth I think often about the empty arena victory um in our first episode we talked about uh, Jake Lee and he had, you know, the same sort of situation where he finally won the Champions Carnival in front of an empty arena. And you could see it on his face, like how that yeah. affected him. And of course, uh, Endo was surrounded at the time by his family of yes. damnation. So you didn't quite get that uh, devastating uh, realization he mentioned yeah. later. But um, yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about damnation um because you are such a big damnation fan mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about the decision to disband uh this unit going in uh this past year and the birth of damnation ta so i mean i cannot entirely separate an objective opinion out of the personal <laughs> emotional devastation i feel about the the disbanding of damnation um i don't know if it was necessary, I can now look back and see the steps toward it. They clearly wanted to align Endo in a slightly more morally baby-faced perspective and with, you know, slightly like more sort of pillars of, you know, Japanese wrestling society and not, you know, sort of <laughs> yielding dysfunctional drunks. Um, and clearly something had to happen there. Um, at the time, I thought the tournament was just like bizarrely anticlimactic for such a beloved and popular faction. I thought they should have at least had a damnation produced show to say goodbye with. Um, but like, I also think it was the only way to do justice to what made damnation tick so well. If they had broken up damnation out of internal drama, it, I don't think it would have made sense or it would have been just bizarrely upsetting because they had been through so much together. Um, well, because they'd done it to themselves all the time. Um, <laughs> and with the, what they'd fought in the outside world and especially after, you know, the entire angle we went through with Endo fake turning on Sasaki, who was trying to real turn on him. Um, 
and just how they repaired that. And I know some people called it retconning, but it was like entirely logical for their like messed up, very sincere relationship. Um, Just like nothing else but them having to be forced to go apart made sense. And they've also been sort of careful to keep Sasaki and Endo away from each other in the storyline now. You know, notice they're not the same block in the tag league. Um, Soma took the brunt of all of Sasaki's original anger so that we didn't really have to see any tension or rift there. At least not yet. They'll keep that from us and hurt us later, I'm sure. Um, So yeah, I mean, I still don't know if it was the best idea. It's not where my heart is, but I can appreciate what they're doing and what what a big opportunity and what a big honor this is for Endo in the direction they're pushing him now. So I am tentatively open to it. Um, I like Damnation TA, but like I also like going to see the casino versions of bands that have like one original member left. And I think maybe I like <laughs> this unit at that level. Um, <laughs> I was actually such talking. a good analogy. It is. It's so great. <laughs> sorry, Sasaki, but like that's what it is. Um, like I, in the abstract, I actually think there's an interesting story here that you know after like all of the abandonment issues of Sasaki's earlier years, he found this family that could only be torn apart by a little bit of their own hubris and not fighting enough to keep themselves, but mostly by external factors. And then he saw everyone else sort of accept it while he wanted to still be a raging asshole. And so he's just sort of spinning his wheels and like trying to relive the past or recreate the past with this, you know, sort of Frankenstein mad Polly that we have in MJ Paul, um, which I would watch the shit out of in an art film but I'm not sure it's a great dynamic for wrestling because it also means that he's spinning his wheels as a wrestler so we're seeing him just like he's not even innovative in his chair violence at the moment because he's he's no longer like interestingly depressed he's just depressed where we're all depressed I guess (laughs) that is deeply despairing actually um but very compelling as well like yeah very art film in a way Um, (laughs) I keep shaking my head because it's just so Sasaki Um, it is what what else could happen after this this is the logical and inevitable progression yeah that is a good question though is what else could happen do you think we might be looking at new members or do you think he's just gonna keep spinning his wheels until I am wondering if uh, Keigo Nakamura would be in Damnation TA already if he weren't injured right now. Um, he seems like a logical inclusion that into the mix. Yeah. I do have a piece of fantasy booking that was originally my mother's suggestion is that she wants her beloved little shit Yuki Ueno <laughs> to just really embrace that internal asshole and go for it. And um she wants him to turn on Takashita for many of the same reasons that Endo went through, because in many ways, Ueno is, you know, having similar issues and occupying that same spot in Takashita's life that his previous happy motel partner did. Um, yeah, so she wants him to turn on him and just embrace the little shit inside of himself. <laughs> um, and I, I think even though Ueno might be above needing that bump, I think it might be a fascinating character development. 
who knows with the uh, ultimate tag league, those two teaming together, that could be where we're going, especially after their uh, final in uh, what was it? The Grand Prix being very, very tense. uh, Very much what you said about greatness in exchange for his humanity. Um, You could really feel that in that match. Um, If you're listening, please go out of your way to watch it. It is very good. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, no, I definitely could see that happening. So maybe maybe Jane Kershak will get her way. (laughs) And we've also established to a certain extent that Oeno hates it when Takashita pays attention to Endo. (laughs) 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 So he could get mad about that too that's that's true it's a good point um on the topic of uh damnation and then ddt's constantly changing landscape um i want to talk a little bit about the leadership of that unit because when i was going through my research um i just noticed that and this was true this was something i remember from interviews Mm -hmm. was that technically damnation had changed hands um, Mm -hmm. on leadership after that storyline you mentioned um 2020 that is sasaki attempting to kick endo out of the unit (laughs) um and then it all turned into uh everybody turning on sasaki which Mm -hmm. turned out to be a ruse however (laughs) sasaki still tried to kick endo out for real and we never (laughs) had to address that because they're all like you know what he would have just gone through it and like cried himself out of it anyway so <laughs> yeah he would have come back like just a few hours later yeah <laughs> but um that's just a very ddt thing but when uh, it turned out to be a ruse mm-hmm. uh, sasaki came back into the unit uh with yamato and it became um sasaki now starting at the bottom as a lowly recruit as a provisional mm-hmm. member um a la nobuhiro and uh, Endo was now the leader. However, do you feel that it actually ever was that way? What is your take on sort of the dynamics of leadership in Damnation? I had sort of just begun to think of Endo as the leader long before that happened anyway. Okay. I mean, I think Sasaki had alluded to it as much in the occasional tweet. Um, To me, they were always sort of too anarchic to really have a leader structure anyway. Um, Sasaki showed no real interest in imposing it and no one else showed any real interest in following him to that extent. Um, He was less of a leader than more of just like a beloved fuck up older brother, I think in the dynamic of the match. And sure he is the one that I think most fans will associate with him. Um, But it was more of a dynamic where he and Endo just sort of functioned as equals and their successes and their power never really threatened each other. Um, Even when they had that half fake, half real split, it's more along the lines that they just happen to push each other's, like like step on each other's fault lines, I guess, Um, which is that, Endo wants to be taken seriously and Sasaki was pretending it was a joke and Sasaki's afraid of abandonment and he assumed the challenge was a step toward leaving. Um, Which of course then he decided to be like, fuck you, I'll leave you first. Um, But that's his tragic self-sabotaging way. Um, So yeah, I never even personally considered it a case of leadership at all to me they just had this really unique dynamic where they could both exist as main figures um in a way that didn't really upset the dynamic 
of their unit and in a way that made the dynamic outside of the unit really interesting because it's very rare to have like two main figures in one unit end up being two of the four main figures in a promotion. Oh, absolutely. It is really fascinating. And it just shows you how unique Damnation was and Mm -hmm. how there really isn't a unit like it. Like people make a lot of comparisons to other units. That's natural when you Mm -hmm. are such a popular marketable unit, Uh, but there really wasn't anything like it. You have sort of this whole ethos about them very like you said, chaotic, this anarchy about them. Um, But now we are moving out of that with Endo Mm -hmm. and Endo is moving into burning, which we will talk about in just a second now. Uh, How do you see that transition going? Do you feel that it's a natural progression? You were talking about, you know, this uh, feeling of Endo wanting to be taken seriously and his Mm -hmm. whole character. So I feel like there is more of a natural progression than it looks like on the surface. I would love to talk about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure if you're not like super obsessive about following specific people in DDP or following DDP at all. And also if you're not more into like reading into the storylines and being like that kind of nerd like I am. Um, it That's why you're here. That's why yeah. you're with us. <laughs> I'm saying like if, if you happen to have a life or something, maybe you wouldn't notice. And we don't, yeah. <laughs> no, no, we don't. So, but I don't know, maybe there's one random person who's going to listen to this podcast and has a life. It could happen. <laughs> so yeah, if you have anything better to do, I don't know what that would be. Sounds weird. Um <laughs> It might look sort of like DDT just went, well, time to make Endo a face. Um, but I think there is a more natural progression there. Um, I don't know if it's all entirely planned, but I think it works within the context of the material we've been given. And either the wrestlers are smoothing it out now or we as fans can fill in the blanks. Um, whatever the case, I, I think there is a little bit more of a natural progression here. Um, I mean, Damnation were DDT's primary heels, even as much as they were like sort of in terms of merchandise treated more like um, tweeners. But I mean, there was still like the main bad force in that un- in that promotion. Um, but within that, um, are you familiar with the cartoon Gem at all? You're you're babies that's why okay (laughs) um for elder millennials most of us learned about moral relativism from this cartoon called gem and the holograms and gem and the holograms were the good guys and the misfits were like the bad guys and they would like try to kill gem and try to drown her and stuff um but one of the members in this band was like the nice bad one stormer um endo was the stormer of damnation so even though he was in a unit that was often doing terrible things, he was not doing most of the terrible things. I mean, there was very little cheating in his matches. Um, He was acting like a little bit of an asshole toward the end of their, um, you know, uh, run as a unit where you might see him in the corner. I think he was like snapping Shunma's armbands during one match. He was pulling Mal's leg hair in another match. Um, So he was... (laughs) doing little shit heel things too um but he wasn't like primarily causing them he had clean win- like big clean wins to his name um 
and even some of his like not so clean wins was more of him capitalizing on shit that had already gone wrong than him just say unlike someone else pulling a chair out from under the ring and swinging it at someone um so i i think he can move into this new unit sort of in a way that makes sense for how he wants to progress and what he wants to do. Uh, it's definitely a chance to be taken seriously. Um, he's got at least some attention and some pr- approval from people who are respected not only in DDT, but in all of wrestling. And you know, being respected is going to be a sore spot for Endo specifically, but it also can be a sore spot for DDT. Um, in a way that I, I don't even think they necessarily need to worry about because they are their beautiful own thing. But sometimes the way that they like get excited when like normal Perot recognizes them reminds me of like how Canadian media gets when like an international celebrity knows Canada exists. And I'm like, <laughs> you don't really need that. Um, so, um, but this does give, you know, the endo character, the legitimacy he's been longing for. And there is also, I think, an established arc in his character where he will align himself with people he wants to learn from. If you read back on uh, some of his early interviews from when he joined Damnation, or even some of like the mid-Damnation period when he, he goes from what talking about what he wanted to learn from Sasaki to what he started to learn from Sasaki. So it also makes sense for him to assemble people and figure out what he can take from them to build like a sort of fuller firing on all cylinders endo that is finally going to be the bigger star um and yeah but I also think there's there's some underlying tension in the formation of new burning um and maybe it's wishful thinking for me but I think we're gonna get something more complicated and something more intriguing than a, a like mentor mentee situation here. Interesting. That's fascinating. Oh, wow. That makes my brain go in like 80 different directions actually. Cause yeah, I was going to say, uh, tell us about, uh, tell us about sternness. <laughs> <laughs> you, that's, you, that's where my mind went. Yeah, exactly. That, that does make me think of how, and like, you know, Sarah, I'm sorry if I'm like repeating things that you know, but burning formed in all Japan when they went to Noah. Um, that's when Misawa as head booker was like, we're going to make Akiyama a star. And at the end of the first um, show in um, August, 2000 for Noah, um, Akiyama ends that show turning on Kobashi and he does mm-hmm. like the power slam. And um, that's how they form sternness. And then the first few years of Noah are really like sternness versus um, burning. Mm-hmm. And they have to like reform burning um, around some, some newer people because Kenamaru, who we're going to talk about in a minute, jumps to um, sternness to be with um, Akiyama. But that's how you start to see people like Kenta come up through burning when he comes back from injury during his first year with Noah. So yeah, there's a lot of that's interesting to sort of think about because there is sort of those wrestling tends to borrow the same storylines over and over and over again. And I think you have the potential to see that through burning in DDT actually. Yeah. I I think I can definitely see patterns there. And um, I mean, if you look at how Endo and Agiyama have interacted right before the formation of burning and into the beginning, and even to the point where Akiyama gave Takeshita that knee right while his like new leader was hanging out about to form a faction with him. Um, 
so yeah, I, I think there's going to be more of a power struggle happening um, in a way that has a chance to elevate a lot of people. And also if you look at the rest of the burning unit right now, you know, there are people in there who could grow more under Akiyama's umbrella than Endo, I think. Absolutely. And that's, that's really what I was going to talk to you about next, Sarah, is that what I, I was floored that burning was going to come back for like a fourth incarnation when this was announced, mm-hmm. but not for the reason that I saw some people react. I saw some people react as if like that's happening in DDT, which was not my reaction. I think I was floored that it was happening between Akiyama and Endo because mm-hmm. of that relationship that Akiyama has now developed with Takeshita and giving Takeshita Jumbo Saruta's knee and all of that. Like that's, that's really interesting that, that, you know, we're seeing this now sort of shift to um, Endo and, what I do think, though, is really important about Akiyama's role and, and you talking about Endo wanting to um, kind of form people around him and sort of bring people up as well is Akiyama as head coach is he's the only person, one of the only people, rather, there's also Yoshinari, Yoshinari Ogawa and Noah. They are the only people working right now who can teach Giant Baba's way of teaching. And mm-hmm. what's really special about this sort of thing happening in DDT is that they're able to bring that way of teaching to DDT and that wouldn't be possible if Akiyama mm-hmm. wasn't there so it's interesting to hear you sort of reflect on how these things can be meaningful to Endo and how they benefit him because I think that's one way in particular that it could benefit him absolutely and I also think there's an interesting parallel to how Endo will balance what he's learning and what he's been given here with who he has been and who he wants to be um, that can be sort of extrapolated into how this might be about like a battle for DDT's soul, how they are going to take this extremely prestigious, you know, style and lineage, um, but not lose themselves in the process so that they can better themselves without, you know, just completely transforming themselves. And I'm going to ask you a question that I didn't plan on, but in just listening to you talk about Endo, this came up for me before I transitioned to something else in, in regards to burning, but you mentioned that Endo has this issue and, and, and Rachel, you've mentioned this too, but we've talked about Endo having issues with perfectionism and feeling mm-hmm. like he's not enough, but I feel like that is completely at odds when you are now sort of the center of carrying on the legacy that is burning and being, you know, sort of pushed into the forefront as representing Kobashi's legacy and Akiyama's legacy is that going to create a lot of, you know, just inherent pressure and stress on Endo, just having to carry that new legacy forward? Oh, easily. Um, But I mean, something might be forged here. But also keep in mind that as respectful as he has been of the legacy so far, he's also been careful to point out like, okay, yeah, Akiyama's here, but it's my burning. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I think there might be some, you know, petulant pushback and not just entirely crumbling of under the weight. Um, it's going to be an interesting dynamic to watch. I think ultimately that could tie into what you were saying of needing DDT's own personality because you have Endo who ultimately came through one of the most DDT factions, which would be Damnation mm-hmm. with Sasaki. So getting that pushback could ultimately be very, very helpful. Yeah. Um, I was going to mention, I was trying to, I guess, think about Endo and kind of just think about burning and draw some comparisons. And I started thinking about the position that Yoshinobu Kanemaru was in um, in the 90s when burning went from just being Akiyama and Kobashi and they started, um, you know, the actual faction. So 
Um, Kenemaru debuted in 96, when he, jo- he joined rather burning with Kentaro Shiga in 98, and that's when they made it a stable. And then in working with Akiyama and Kobashi, Kenemaru starts to establish himself as one of the rising stars in Japan. And what's really interesting about him at that time is that he won Tospo's Rookie of the Year Award in 98, despite having debuted two years previously, which is super unusual. But this mentorship put Kenemaru on the path to becoming Noah's junior ace and the guy to beat for years for everyone that was in that junior division in Noah. So it's not the same situation because Endo is already well-established within DDT. He's much older than Kenemaru was, but is there still a parallel here? And could there be something to sort of a restart at this point in Endo's career while he's working with Kobashi and Akiyama? I wonder if people who aren't already on board with Endo, and I know there are a number, um, are hoping this will be a complete reboot. Um, and, and I mean, I'm not going to completely rule out the idea that that's where they're going but I think of what we've seen of New Burning and Endo in New Burning so far especially with you know him having this decisive win right off the top with the shooting star press um, is that we're not getting like a completely new Endo we're getting an evolution Um, and so I, I actually wonder if they're playing with that expectation too that if people are waiting for Endo to be completely reshaped by this new experience. Um, and he's maybe not quite as on board um, as he starts to like find his own way and have his own priorities in the unit. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really interesting to actually have your, your take on that in particular. And that same line of thinking, there's been a lot of discussion on places like Twitter about Yusuke Okada's booking in DDT. Mm-hmm. I think maybe people feeling like some expectations are not being met of when he came over from all Japan. He is one of Akiyama's guys. There's a relationship there. It's been established for a couple of years. What do we expect from him and burning? What do we expect from the rest of the members of new burning right now? Well, I definitely think um, with Okada, we probably would have a better impression of how it was going to be if he were healthy and able to wrestle right at this moment. Um, I think when he comes back, we will start to see the integration of that more. I've definitely been surprised at how little DDT has used him up until now. Um, Mm -hmm. But I wonder if they were just saving him more. I mean, Endo didn't do a ton in 2021, even though he was in more prominent matches. um, He was going through some retooling, um, both like in terms of his character's arc and also just physically because he was trying to put on weight um, clearly for this opportunity um, and also like learn to wrestle in his style with that new weight. So you can actually, if you go through the years, see how his body changes and see how his movement changes in relation to that, um, which is side note, not something you really see in wrestling a lot because we're used to like someone going away and getting injured and then the rock comes back with a shirt on until, you know, everything calms down in the tit region post recovery. <laughs> <laughs> so to actually like see someone going through a cycle of, you know, putting on mass and then, you know, toning it down again, but also learning how to do like incredibly dangerous stunts and do them nicely um, is a process that we don't tend to witness a lot in wrestling. So that's interesting. Um, but yeah, maybe in ter- terms of Okada, it was more of just a fallow period to get to this point um, because I can definitely mm-hmm. see him having more growth potential in new burning than Endo will. And that's not to say Endo won't have growth potential, but I think his story will be a little less in line with burning, lifting everyone up Mm -hmm. than maybe the rest. 
And then uh, what about their rookie, um, Yuya Kodoku? Do you see so, anything out of him? I mean, so <laughs> I believe in an interview, Endo said that one of the reasons he picked Kodoku um, is because he was just so enthusiastically, enthusiastically asking questions without any sort of ability to read the room or back off. And then it reminded Endo of himself <laughs> as a younger wrestler. Um, and we've definitely kind of seen like the way they, what they share on Twitter of, of their workouts and how they've been wrestling that uh, it, it seems like Endo has a son right now, um, <laughs> <laughs> which will, I mean, give him a lot of meat in terms of who aligns with who if there does start to be tension within this unit um mm-hmm. just like so much to work for and like work with in terms of character and in terms of wrestling too um yeah there's a huge upside here even if it's not ideally what I want personally even though I respect the opportunity <laughs> <laughs> yeah when I was uh, watching the burning matches I really really liked um Kuroku and Endo's uh, relationship in the matches you could see how much uh, Endo was sort of um positioning Kuroku and getting him to that point and very much supporting him and it was just a uh, very exciting to see I also got the sun vibes that was yeah. very much <laughs> exactly what I thought I was like oh he's adopted how's yeah. that? Uh, but it's it's really great it just gives a really good uh, vibe to the unit so we've talked a little bit about um, Burning's history and legacy and that this is really the fourth incarnation of Burning and it's a little unusual for it to be in DDT. Mm-hmm. And I know you mentioned that DDT feels a little excited um, to yeah. <laughs> have this opportunity, but what do you see as the benefit to them coming into DDT? What's different about bringing an established faction like Burning into DDT versus creating one such as creating Damnation, even creating, you know, Sonic Amina, things like that? Well, I mean, it, this is not a domestic DDT thing, but it is happening in DDT for very organic reasons right now. Um, and it's not like they sought out something that was going to give them legitimacy and try to bring it into the promotion. This has clearly come from genuine interest on Akiyama's part in DDT and like real investment in it. Um, and Kabashi seems to be like genuinely supportive of everything that's happening too. And has seems to have taken like a, a real interest in Endo. Um, and so I think if it was more forced, it would be more suspicious. But I think the real throwdown for DDT here is not just like, look at what we have. It's look at who actually cared and wanted to invest in us. Um, So I do hope, and I think it will, impress upon people who have not given DDT a lot of respect um, that they earned this. And that I really think they're gonna do great things with it. Um, And then maybe it will, I mean, it's not like it's not going to add anything to the promotion, but I also think it's just going to highlight the level of skill that was already there. Absolutely. I think that's a fantastic thing. So based on what you know about Endo, uh, let's talk a little bit about the significance of this moment of this almost re-debut of Endo in Burning, just a really fantastic match. Mm-hmm. But um, Akiyama publicly giving Endo his burning robe that he wore to final burning Kobashi's retirement event in 2013. 
So what impression did that have on you? I mean, it was quite obviously a big moment and a real testament, I think, to Akiyama's personal investment in this above and beyond the storyline. I think I was even more charmed by how he went out of his way to point it out on Twitter to everyone who didn't get it. Like yeah. that to me was what feels <laughs> this was like a very genuine moment and kind of a very dad moment. Yeah. <laughs> Look what I did. Um, so yeah, it was extremely powerful. On the other hand, for this like torch passing, crowning, whatever you want to call it, of a moment meant that Endo stopped wearing his robe, which, you know, had the crest of his beloved hometown, um, of which he is currently the tourism ambassador, Shiroshi, <laughs> over his heart. Um, it had like little beetles embroidered over it. Um, he's a Leo, so it had a constellation on it. Like it was sort of this roadmap of a lot of different things that meant a lot to him. So that had to disappear for the big crowning to happen. Um, it's a big, big, huge moment but there is a give and take that's happening even within the symbolism of the rope. It's also funny to point out that June had to put the video on Twitter because Kobashi forgot um, when June wore the robe. <laughs> so it's very important for June to always, always clown Kobashi-san. Amazing. <laughs> so um, I wanted to ask you too, Sarah, for predictions that you have for Akiyama and Endo's run through Ultimate Tag League, which is coming up. I think there is a strong chance they'll win it. Um, um, but also, I can see them being you know, excellent in skill and mostly on the same page, but just not in tune enough when it counts, which would be another interesting part of the story. Um, I can also see maybe some jealousy developing in terms of how Akiyama treats Takeshita versus Endo that would built extremely well to where we're going with the next Keshta Endo match. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure what the final outcome of the tag league is going to be, but I think it's very fertile ground for everything they want to do from there. Yeah, and speaking of that challenge, um, and it very well could be that ultimate tag league is going to be a lot of our build to that challenge. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely something to keep an eye on, but what are your thoughts on endo challenging Takesha for the KOD open weight championship? Uh, was it too early? Was it too late? What are your thoughts on their match going into judgment in March? I was originally surprised that they set it up as early as they did, but I mean, there was no mystery there. We all knew what that match was going to be for judgment. <laughs> there was absolutely nothing else they could do there. Um, so in that sense, maybe just go with it. I think it's very, very true to their characters, the way it was set up, because we have this established, and it's mostly through jokes at Beer Garden, but this long-term established proof that Takeshita has this weird, weak, nostalgic spot for Endo now. And can absolutely be motivated to buy that he's sincere no matter what happens. I know the last time it happened, he said that he wouldn't trust Endo again until he had a bowl cut. And I know it's not a bowl cut now, but I do want to point out he changed his hair for this. Um, so, <laughs> so when Endo comes out, it could be currently like sincere in terms of his current character, or he could be playing it here, but he directly went to the nostalgia. He 
wasn't like here I've challenged I'm gonna earn it he went like it has to be you and me basically just playing on that same weakness that Takeshita has already always had so I mean he walked into a title opportunity just by pushing all of Takeshita's buttons which actually is a really interesting development it might not make sense in terms of where he's ranked but there aren't a lot of people who have sort of a, a very obvious route to a title shot before him either. Um, he was beaten by Ueno in his block in the tournament, but, you know, the winner of the other block has already had a match against him. Ueno is already lost. Um, he technically is next in line anyway. Um, but yeah, that, that slight hint of whether it's nostalgia and earnestness on his part or whether it's opportunism, um, for a 25th anniversary main event to be triggered because of nostalgia and memories. That is also very interesting to me, even if it weren't the two of them and their very weird history and dynamic. So whatever else happens here, and I'm sure lots of interesting stuff will, um, no, it actually makes sense that Takeshi would be like, okay, I'll do this match. Uh, <laughs> go for it. Awesome. It's been fantastic Sarah to listen to you talk this in depth about endo super privileged to be able to to listen to you like this seriously there's so much that I don't think I would have ever considered if we hadn't been able to (laughs) talk to you like this so thank you um so much for joining us and as we come to the close of our conversation we always like to ask people that we're talking to like what else are you watching like what are your other favorite promotions wrestlers feuds like what is really you know um interesting to you in wrestling right now well, um, I, I do keep sort of general tabs on Choco Pro. I was watching every episode for the first hundred. Now I tend to like move in and out a bit more. Um, my husband is convinced that the entirety of AEW or Emmy Sakura's matches on Dark and occasionally Bear Country matches. So that's our <laughs> AEW experience. <laughs> um, and uh, I keep meaning to watch New Japan. It's just not happening right now. So that's my wrestling viewing. Um, other than that, I am sort of getting into learning about Niagara Falls Daredevils because I used to think they were heroic, but now that I know that they're tragic, they're really interesting. <laughs> so now that I realize they're all more Sasaki than anyone else, I'm on board. Yes. <laughs> so I'm actually uh, like reading an out-of-print history on Annie Edson Taylor, who was the first person to survive going over the falls in a barrel. Um, and was a complete grifter. Basically, one of the few honest things she did in her life was actually go over the falls. Um, and she died tragic and poor. So that's super interesting. I just sort of scroll through the Criterion channel and see what random weird movies I can find <laughs> that speak to my weird soul. And yeah, I think it's about the entirety of my hobbies other than occasionally doom scrolling on Twitter. <laughs> sadly addictive I know I can't stop I think you could consider a podcast for your Niagara Falls research I think that's really interesting thinking about I I, I do need a venue to be able to just talk about what sad sacks they were (laughs) yeah absolutely I mean when you take into account that their entire skill set is not dying (laughs) it puts a lot in perspective Oh, it absolutely does. That is very Sasaki. <laughs> I feel like I feel like Daisuke Sasaki would try to go over the falls. Well, okay. So one of the people who went over the falls um, 
sort of disappeared into the other after. And the only statement he made on the fact later was that he'd done it to atone for something he'd done wrong in a romantic relationship. Um, so yeah, I could see him getting drunk, showing up, going over in a ball and being like so drunk that he was just limp and didn't hurt at all. And be like, what happened? Um, yeah. Or making a grand statement and like tragically dying because his turtle took up all the air or something. <laughs> something <laughs> that's truly, truly something else, but also extremely accurate. I can see it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you again, Sarah, so much. And just one more time, where can our listeners find you so they can go follow you immediately and get all of your great takes on Endo Sasaki DT? All right. It's a fodder figure. F-O-D-D-E-R-F-I-G-U-R-E. Yeah. And I have like a year long gift spread of just endo selling and falling down dramatically that you can keep up with and, you know, other insights and, you know, tidbits into my ongoing like mental breakdown as an elder millennial writer on Twitter in a pandemic. (laughs) And you are absolutely not going to want to miss that. So definitely give her a follow. (laughs) And again, thank you so much for joining us. We oh, had thank an you absolute blast. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I might have to force the manifesto upon you to get even more of my points across. I can't yeah. wait. All I right. means do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We oh, are waiting with bated breath. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Thank you all so much for listening to and supporting Kickout. We are looking forward to bringing you more episodes on Factions and Pararasu over the next several weeks. Subscribe to or follow us on Apple or Spotify so that you get our episodes first when they drop. And of course, you can always find us on Twitter at Kickout299. And then you can find me, Rachel, at Milky Star. That's M-I-I-K-Y star. And then you can find Alicia at Shiranuikai two eyes. You can also check out our e-zine at kickout299.wordpress.com. And please make sure to send us an email at kickout at at 299 at gmail.com. Um, that's where you can submit questions and feedback that we may read on future episodes. And if you're interested in submitting a pitch for the blog or to be on the podcast, please send us an email there. And we have been in the kickout test kitchen cooking up some really great episodes for you. So you are going to want to keep an eye on that. We've got an episode coming up with Jonathan Foy talking about his excellent book, Gambaru. And we have a new show coming to kick out. So please be on the lookout for that over the next week or so. And of course, don't forget to watch our Twitter for more news about future interviews and deep dives We have a lot of cool things in mind. Thank you all so much, and we will talk to you soon.